Various movements and religions across the centuries have sought to make an impact, even to change the world we live in. Often this is pursued through very ambitious actions, great plans that are made. If there were such a movement today, they would craft likely some massive global marketing campaign. How could they cast a vision for change, real change, impact in the world? Like those others, Jesus Christ came to impact and bring change into this world. But he also did so through very different means. His plan was to use a tiny group of, honestly, very unimpressive followers. And through lives that are marked by small but countercultural actions. And this morning we'll see some of the most countercultural actions of all of Jesus' instructions. Some of them so strange, so peculiar that when I was 20 years old, a college junior, I was a Christian but a very immature one. And I made up for my immaturity by being very prideful and opinionated. So it was a, it was a great combination for all who were around me at the time. And in a conversation with a man who was twice my age, who was my mentor, we were talking about a portion of the text we'll see today. As we looked at what Jesus said and what he said Jesus was saying, I would have none of it. And spent hours arguing, thinking of every possible exception to why that just couldn't mean what exactly it says and why there must be some way of justifying different ways of responding. I think my response was not so different from what many, most, may have in response to the strange, unique way that Jesus desires to change the world. So today we'll see that Jesus still intends for his church to shine as light in the world, but through these most peculiar and countercultural ways. So if you have a Bible today, turn to the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll pick it up in verse 33, and the Bible's near you, under the seat in front of you. If you're downstairs or in the balcony in your seat there, you can find it on page 810. Page 810, I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app, just so you can see the text in front of you. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 5. Smaller numbers, the verse numbers, will be in verse 33, working from that. And I'll mention those throughout our time together. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. At the back of the room, there's a table with a stack of Bibles on it. And on your way out, just grab one of those and take it with you today as our gift to you. So here we have the words of Jesus in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Today in our text, we see this central theme, that we're to live from the heart as salt and light in truthfulness, mercy, and love. And we'll see three ways we're to do this in the text. First, we'll see that we're to speak truthfully. Second, to respond mercifully. And then third, love uniquely. So first, speak truthfully. And we'll see this in verses 33 through 37. Now we're continuing in this portion of Jesus' teaching we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. And in this sermon, Jesus the King has been saying, He the King has come, His kingdom is breaking into this world, and with the King and His kingdom brings a different sort of way of living. And He's casting a vision in this sermon for how His followers are to live in this world. Now very importantly, not to live this way so that they can become children of God, but when they're saved by grace through trust in Jesus the King, then they live this life flowing from that great salvation. So we don't live this way to earn God's favor, but because we've received God's grace, we now live differently in this world. Jesus continues here the pattern that we've seen previously where he would quote from the Old Testament and then speak to that. But here, it's not a direct quotation from the Old Testament when Jesus says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, it's an allusion to multiple Old Testament texts. So you can find this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, Leviticus 19, 12. There are a few others as well. So here, here it's an allusion to the Old Testament. And what we see in the Old Testament is that taking an oath or a vow for God's people was not prohibited. So the Old Testament scriptures do permit God's people to take oaths and to take vows. So what Jesus is speaking here is to not that the vows and oaths were in and of themselves inappropriate, but how they were being used. So Jesus addresses here various oaths and vows that were made by people in that day to try to convince other people of the truthfulness of what they were saying. Or sometimes to make an oath and a vow in such a way that they could get out of it if they didn't want to do it, and they could say, well, that oath that I took wasn't actually binding. And it's in light of that, then, that Jesus says in verses 34 and following. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So Jesus points to some illustrations, some ways that people were taking oaths. 
And he says, look, everything that you're taking an oath to as a foundation for your people to have confidence in you, they're God's. They're not yours. And so Jesus points to some ways that these oaths and vows are being used to allow for their dishonesty instead of to be the ground of their honesty. Now, later on, we'll see in Matthew chapter 23 when we get there, that there again, Jesus teases out how the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were misusing oaths and vows. They had a tremendously elaborate system by which they could justify their own dishonesty. But Jesus says his followers must not do this because these oaths were encouraging, that they're, they're encouraging deceit instead of truthfulness. Now, maybe when you were a kid, you were like me, that when I was a kid, we had a variety of ways that we could try to try to persuade someone that you really meant what you were saying. Some little sayings that we would use to try to say, yeah, I'm telling the truth. So we might say something like, cross my heart and hope to die. Or we would say like, I swear. Or maybe we would just say, I promise. Or we would like really emphasize promise. I, I promise it's true. But also we'd have some ways out. Maybe you had these as well. So maybe you wanted to get out of commitment, but you would say after that, well, I didn't swear, so therefore it didn't count. Or you might use the ultimate trump card, and that was, I had my fingers crossed, so therefore it didn't, whatever I said, when my fingers are crossed, didn't really count. That's what we do as kids. I hope you don't still do that. But though we likely don't do that, we do, even as adults, often find ways to say something that's not really true, but to appear truthful. Or try to commit to something but allow away that in essence we could say, but I had my fingers crossed. But look at what Jesus calls all of his true followers. Look down at verse 37. Jesus says this, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus says to us, he says to his followers, keep your words simple, transparent, and true. Your yes should mean yes. Your no should mean no. After people have a conversation with us, they should not have to spend time walking away thinking, was he really being truthful? They shouldn't have to walk away from you thinking, is she really being honest? Or what did she really mean by this or that? My yes should mean yes, not maybe, or not possibly, or not if I, if I feel like it or if it's convenient. Your no should mean no. Not unless you change your mind, unless you think it might be to your advantage. And if you're a person of honest character, then you will not need to swear by this or that. We won't need to say, I promise, I'm telling the truth. And friends, the good news is Jesus didn't only call his followers to this sort of life, but he lived it out perfectly. As Jesus walked the earth, he was always truthful. His yes meant yes. His no meant no. Jesus never shaded the truth. After you heard Jesus talk, you didn't have to parse it out and try to figure out exactly what he was saying. Friends, our Savior was perfect and always truthful. 
Now, the society we live in, we basically assume dishonesty of one another. We think basically everyone lies some of the time. An example of this is is we think about politicians. All of us filter out what politicians say. Now, every politician makes many promises as they campaign, but almost nobody really believes they're going to do it. Our filter is somewhat different depending on if this is our candidate or not. If it's our candidate, we'd say, well, well, you know, she means well. She may not keep those promises, but, but I'm with her. But if it's the other candidate, like, no, he's a liar through and through at every level. But we don't really assume that a candidate will keep all of their promises. So often people in our culture, we ourselves do this. We answer questions very carefully so that we could say, technically, I wasn't being dishonest. Technically, what I said was true. I actually didn't answer the question, but what I said was technically not a lie. The fact is many, maybe some of us, actually don't intend to be honest. We say, look, no one can really get by in this world today by being honest all the time. You can't make it in the workplace. You can't make it on campus. You can't climb the ladder by being honest all the time. So let's not be naive. We want to be honest as much as we can, but we can't do it all the time. That's what many or most might say. And so we live in this incredibly cynical and dishonest society. But so what are we to do? As the followers of Jesus, we want to be people of our word. People who are deeply marked by honesty. So we want to use plain speech when we talk with others. We want to be able to make and keep commitments. We want to be reliable that people can count on us if we commit something to them. Some people are are tempted because we we don't want to say no to things that we actually never say yes to anything. So we never commit to anything at all, and maybe that's your temptation. For others of us, we we do say yes, but it's always tentative. You invite me to dinner, I say yes, but in the back of my mind, I'm always holding out. If I get a better dinner invitation, I'm going to let you know, like, actually something came up. They're taking me to a nicer restaurant. So we always leave the door open for other options, never fully committed. But Jesus is saying that we should be the sort of people that people can count on us to do what we say. If I say I'll be there, I'll be there. If I say I'll be there at that time even, I'll be there at that time. Maybe that's too high of a bar actually. But but at least theoretically, We'll do what we say. We'll commit and follow through. Now, you might be wondering, but but what about vows and oaths in our culture? Is Jesus saying that a Christian in a particular nation should never take an oath? Like in a court of law, should a Christian resist taking an oath? Well, actually, like the Old Testament, in the New Testament also, we see that the Scriptures are not opposed to God's people taking oaths. We see Jesus more or less under oath in Matthew 26 during his trial. We see the Apostle Paul numerous times call God as his witness in his letters. So Christians don't need to be opposed to oaths or vows in our society. 
But a Christian could also say, oh, I'm, I'm very willing to take an oath in this courtroom, but, but I, I don't necessarily need one. I'm willing because I, I'm just going to tell the truth. It's just what we do. So Christians are willing to take oaths and vows, but, but the fact is we shouldn't need an outward oath imposed on us to tell the truth because that's what we do. That's what we are to do as God's people. So friend, consider today, do people in your life see you as honest and reliable? Can they trust you? And where in your life right now are you most tempted to be dishonest? And friend, what would it look like this week to begin to live differently with an increasing level of honesty in your life? Friend, in a world that's cynical and assumes dishonesty, think about how the light of Christ could shine forth just in, in our city, in this region, if Christians were scattered and we were marked by honesty. In our neighborhoods, in our friendships, at work, on the campus. Friend, the fact is this way of living will be good for others around us. It'll be good for your coworkers, for other students, friends, neighbors, family members, when they know that they can trust your word. It brings stability. But friends, this is also good for us. This will be good for you as well. For as we all know, when we live in a way where we're being dishonest, it's exhausting because one, we have to try to remember what we told the person. And one lie almost always demands or requires a second and then another lie after that. This eats at the health of our minds, of our souls. It's an exhausting life, but when we embrace honesty, we're able to walk in freedom and in wholeness. So it's good for others, it's good for us, and it also glorifies God. We are like our faithful truthful Savior and King when we live this way. God is glorified when we walk in the path of Jesus. The good news is our Savior did it perfectly, and friend, He will help you to do it as well. For the Christian, the Spirit dwells within us. And if you desire to walk in truthfulness, the Holy Spirit, He will give you strength to make progress in that. So we want to speak truthfully. Second, we also want to respond mercifully, to respond mercifully, verses 38 to 42. Look down at verse 38. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a quote from uh, Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, Deuteronomy 19, 21. This principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is what is called the lex talionis, or law according to kind. Now, this was not exclusive to God's people. Other groups also had this as well. And the point of this principle was intended to be positive. At first hearing to us, this sounds like a really harsh judgment. An eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. But it was designed to prevent retribution that exceeded the crime. So often, retribution escalates. Someone hurts you, you hurt them back. I don't know if you had a sibling growing up. I had one brother, an older brother. And so... We had regular conflict in our lives. And so if he, you know, hit me, I would hit him back. But usually if he hit me, I hit him back maybe twice. 
if he broke something of mine, I broke something of his, but, but I would break something bigger of his. Maybe we had a really dysfunctional family. Maybe you didn't have any of those issues uh, in your life. So, so someone comes into a village, they break someone's arm. Well, well, then our village goes and breaks two arms. Then someone is killed. So retribution tends to always increase. So this principle was intended to limit, saying no more than what was done to you. You can't increase the level in your retribution. But notice what Jesus says in verse 39. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the evil one. So Jesus will go on, not contradicting the positive aspects, but he goes further saying, don't escalate in response to retribution, but in fact, don't demand retribution. You may have the right for retribution, but you don't have to take advantage of it. Instead, Jesus says, walk in mercy. And then Jesus gives us these four examples. Look down at verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this slap on the right cheek is likely referring to a backhanded slap as a part of the culture. And really would be less the pain of the slap as much as it was the indignity of it. So this would be a way to, to publicly shame someone, to slap them on the cheek. Now, according to the law of retribution, eye for an eye, if they strike you on the right cheek, what should you do? Strike them on the right cheek. That's not what Jesus says, though, is it? He says, don't strike back. Instead, turn the other cheek. Jesus, our king, not only encouraged others to turn the other cheek, he did it as well. Matthew chapter 6, we see Jesus was repeatedly slapped, mocked. And yet he didn't strike back. He only turned the other cheek. Second example, verse 40. That if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now the men of that day would typically wear two layers of clothing, an inner garment, the tunic, and the outer cloak. So Jesus describes a situation where they're suing you to take one of your garments. And he says, if they sue you in that way, give them the other garment as well. And we see as Jesus was crucified, the soldiers took his garments also. Third example, verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. At the time, Israel was under the Roman Empire. And so it was legal for a Roman soldier to say to any Jew that they wanted to, you must carry my pack for a mile. That was the law. Which would have greatly angered them, you know, for this you know, occupying force to now force me to do work for them. To trudge for an hour carrying their luggage. But Jesus says, don't just do it one mile. Go a second mile if they ask you to do that. And then a fourth example. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus says, if there is someone in need, be generous with what God has provided for you. Be generous to the extent that it, that it feels ridiculous. It feels well beyond our level of comfort. If someone needs to borrow from you, give to them freely. So the picture is to be quick and ready to be generous with what we have, a desire and a willingness where possible to meet the needs of others. So Jesus calls his followers, he calls us to a very different way of living. 
choosing not to take the retribution that perhaps we have a right to, instead to willingly allow ourselves to be wronged. Because Jesus has shown us this way in his life. The Apostle Peter says it this way, describing that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and following. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So in this text we want, we see the picture of, of Jesus being reviled and not reviling. But we also see that we're called to look to his example and follow in his steps. To watch him walk Walk like him. So friends, our Savior and King has shown us the way. And he will empower you as you want to follow Jesus in this. He will give you strength to do that. There's certainly a number of questions that come to mind as we think, think about how we might apply this in life today in our world. And one, we want to be mindful. It requires godly wisdom to apply principles like this. So we'll need the wisdom of God's Word. We'll also need often the wisdom of God's people to think through particular situations and how this applies. So for instance, we have the, the question of retaliation, turn the other cheek. If a spouse is being physically abused, this is not saying that she should turn the other cheek. In wisdom, we say to her, no. Seek safety. Let us help you. We want to intervene on your behalf. If you're walking to the tea today, this afternoon, and you saw a child being attacked, you're not going to say the child should turn the other cheek. No, I would hope you would intervene to protect the child. So there are means of wisdom that would drive us to intervene, in particular in times of injustice. We might ask, well, what does this mean for, for military, for governments, for nations? The, the broader question of pacifism? When we have to think deeply about this, and I only have a few minutes, and Christians have written books and books on the topic, but just a few things I would say. One is that Jesus' followers are not a part of one single geopolitical nation. So Jesus' followers are scattered among the nations all around the world. And we see in Jesus' life that, that he doesn't require soldiers, for instance, to leave their vocation as a soldier. We see the New Testament speak to the necessity, even the, the value of states, of nations. And the nations are, are given the sword to wield at times. So we'd certainly say that there is far too much war in the world. And Christians can and should speak up to try to work for peace whenever possible. But a direct application of this text would not be sort of blanket pacifism for all peoples at all times. Also with godly wisdom, we, we sometimes might find that 
in this call to give generously to one who asks, there, there might be a situation where a person we know who's asking from us, and we've come to understand that we actually think if we give in this situation what they're asking, it actually would be unhelpful to them. So it could be unloving for me to give in a situation like that. But again, it takes wisdom and often the wisdom of others with us to try to discern what that looks like. And that as citizens who live in the United States, a place where we're blessed with so many rights, how are we to think and live within those? One, it does seem wise where possible for, for Christians to seek to preserve the rights that are available in a country like this. So we're thankful we're training up a new crop of lawyers here in Cambridge right now who, who hopefully will, will work to preserve rights. And, and it's a good thing for Christians to desire peoples around the world to have greater rights as well. But I would also say, even as Christians want to see rights preserved, Christians shouldn't always seek to exert our own rights. Christians in America have many rights. But sometimes we should choose not to exert our rights and to allow ourselves to be wronged. But it will take wisdom to discern when and how. And friends, even as we seek to have wisdom... We'll have to be very careful when we hear these words of Jesus not to rationalize them away, to take the, the sort of weight of them off. Because if we hear them, these are truly shocking statements. The statement of turning the cheek was the one that I told you about that I, that I argued for hours with my friend. Because we talked about it. I had read the Bible a little bit, was familiar with this loosely, but in my mind it just seemed so ridiculous and impractical. So I had all sorts of arguments why you couldn't really live with this sort of non-retribution in this world. It just couldn't work. So I thought. And so friends, we want to feel the weight of what Jesus is calling us to today. It truly is extraordinary and will be countercultural wherever we live. So friends, what would it look like for us I wonder where in your life do you need to turn the other cheek right now? Instead of seeking retribution, to allow yourself to be wronged. In the workplace, perhaps. On campus. What does it look like for you to live with this great generosity that we see in the call of Jesus? To freely seek to meet needs. To risk being taken advantage of others. To lean towards that for the sake of generosity in this life. Friend, where might you need to walk in greater mercy this week? So we want to respond mercifully. And then third and last, we want to love uniquely. Love uniquely in verses 43 and following. This is the last of the series of sayings. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And the first part, you shall love your neighbor, is found in Leviticus 19. But the second part, hate your enemy, is not found in the Old Testament. That is not God's word. Love your neighbor was a command of God. Hate your enemy was something that grew up among God's people around that. They began to narrow who was their neighbor and began to hate those who were not their neighbor. This was a sinful, though common, view in that day. 
And again, Jesus calls his followers, he calls us to a different way. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These are not necessarily two distinct groups, those who are our enemies and those who persecute us. Often they would be the same. But at times you might have an enemy who doesn't persecute you. And Jesus says when we do this, we're more and more like our Father. But that's what he does. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father. And sons here means like. So you may be like your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So it's a picture of God's kindness to all in the world. That it's not only God's followers who get rain on their crops, but all do. So he says, when you love your enemy, you are like your father. And Jesus says, simply loving those who love you is not sufficient. Look at his words in verse 46. For if you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He basically says, everyone does this. It's like, it's, it's not impressive if you love those who love you. It's not impressive if you like being around those who are just like you. Everyone does that, he says. But Jesus calls us to something different. And if we hear what he's saying, it really is shocking and out of step with what is normal in our world. And friends, these words would have been stunning to the original hearers, for they faced enemies daily. Numerous enemies, and one of those, the Romans, this occupying force. So in Jesus' day, you go for a walk that day, you would see some Roman soldiers. So here's an enemy right in front of you. And what's the call? Love them and pray for them. So Jesus speaks to life in the real world. He assumes that we, his followers, will at, time, at times have some enemies. And what are we to do? Love them. Not just theoretically, but in practice. And one of the most fundamental ways to love an enemy is to pray for them. Honest praying is an act of love. Because to pray is to pray for the person's good. Now, you might be praying for an enemy, and one of the things you might wisely pray for them is that they might know the grace of God. They might come to know Christ. That would be a loving thing to pray for anyone they would know Christ. But in addition to that, to, to pray for an enemy is to pray for their good, even to pray for their favor, for their prosperity, for them to do well in the world. Friends, Jesus prayed for his enemies. The very ones putting him to death on the cross. Luke 23, 34, Jesus says this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he prays for those putting him to death. All those involved, he prays for them. Not long after, Stephen, who was one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 7, verse 60, preaches a sermon. He's being stoned, about to die. Here's what Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. A very similar prayer. Jesus, Father, forgive them. Stephen, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. So if you want to pray for an enemy, that's a good prayer to pray for them as well. Father, forgive my enemy. 
forgive this one who is against me. Forgive this one who's working for my harm. And friends, thankfully, Jesus prayed for us, but did even more than pray for us. Here's the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see what we're called? Enemies of God. That's what we were. While we were still sinners sinners and enemies of God, we were living in opposition to him, Christ died for us. Jesus loved his enemies. He prayed for them and died for them. So if you're a Christian, you once were an enemy, Christ died for you, so you are a beloved enemy, now made a son or daughter of God. And because you were loved when you were an enemy, you can love enemies. Because Christ loved you when you were his enemy. In fact, we must love our enemies. If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would join us. Maybe you're skeptical on a variety of levels about Christianity. Friends, we want to see what Jesus did for enemies like us. Jesus came to rescue rebels like me and you through his intentional willing dying in our place on the cross to pay for all of our dishonesty, to pay for all of our lacking mercy, to pay for all the times we increased retribution. Christ died for that. To provide this free gift of salvation to any and all who receive it by faith. And that's what we most want you to hear today. It is true Jesus cast a compelling vision of how to live in this world, but we'd say we can't live that way until we've received the free gift of God in Christ, this salvation. So friend, first consider Christ. But also consider this life that Jesus is calling us to. Isn't this the life that's really worth living? Christians certainly have failed to do this, and we still fail often. And throughout history, we've not done it as well as we should. But by God's grace, we seek to make progress. Then Jesus concludes with a final call to consistent living, verse 48. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The sense of perfect here is not flawless that I think we most often would think of, but it's a call in context to wholeness, integrity as a person, our actions and our words being connected. Because that's what Jesus has been going at throughout. They were not committing adultery with their bodies, but they were in their mind and heart. They were not murdering people, but in their mind they had murderous anger. So there's an inconsistency between actions and thoughts. And so this living perfectly is is one who is whole. That's what we're called to, to be consistent. In our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, that's what Jesus is calling us to. And he is the perfect example of this. Our self-giving Savior invites us into this different way of living. But friends, we face the choice today. Will we trust that Jesus' way is best? Because if we honestly read what Jesus says here, 
this life will be costly and, in fact, painful. The fact is, in our city, you might get ahead by being dishonest. You might climb the ladder faster through retaliation. This is not a guarantee of getting ahead in this life. It's not a promise of blessing this week or this month. Now, there is the promise of power and grace for this life. The promise of blessing to come. As we saw earlier at the beginning in the Beatitudes, that, that this, Jesus is saying, is the life that's real flourishing. So this is the life worth living, a life marked by flourishing, but it is also a costly life. But it's good and right and true and ultimately healthy and whole, even as it costs us deeply. So friend, let me encourage, if we want to walk down this path, we must watch Jesus. Give great attention to Jesus' life. So read all the scriptures, but in particular, look at the Gospels. Because unless we're regularly watching his life in the scriptures, seeing the beauty of his life and his work, this call will seem utterly ridiculous and impossible. And so we watch Jesus again and again so that we grow in amazement at who he is and love for what he has done. And the more we watch and meditate on this, we grow in our desire and our ability to follow his example. And friends, as you embrace this way in these seemingly small actions this week, here and now, friend, God will be glorified in you and his light will shine that others would glorify your Father today, this week, the gospel would go forward as we live this out together. And this morning, as a means of response, there are several ways to respond. One of those is the connection card in your worship guide. There's a variety of ways that we'd love to pray for you, or, or maybe you have questions, you'd like to talk more about one of these areas, we'd love to do that. Maybe you want to sign up for things, you can note that on the card. Just a moment, we'll receive the offering. You can drop the card in the basket. We're going to sing together in a moment. It's a means of response Refreshing our confession in Christ through song. We're just going to bow our heads now, now for just a time of silence. Right where you are, maybe it's to repent of one of these areas. Pray that God would give you strength to walk and follow the example of Jesus. So let's bow our heads for a time of silent praying. Then I'll lead us in praying together.